everyone, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Blue Apron and Text Expander from Smile. I'm Simone de Rochefort uh, from Polygon.com, and I'm here as always with Christina Warren, senior writer at Gizmodo, and Brianna Wu, head of development at Giant Space Cat. And boy, howdy, do we have a show for oh you tonight. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh my god. I don't like we're just gonna we should start off this episode by telling Rocket listeners we can't get to it all or it would be like a six hour show. You're literally like going over this in in Facebook Messenger being like, okay, of the like six things (laughs) of the six things things for our three topic show and like no dessert because everything is serious. God garbage. Well let's start with Microsoft. Oh my right off the bat. So Microsoft had their big surface event today and it was really sexy yeah i can't believe i'm saying this about a microsoft but it was so sexy so we're recording so this on wednesday uh before the apple event uh you know we talked about like delaying rocket today and it just didn't work out because Honestly, some I think people it's better this way because then we get to devote like equal time to yes, microsoft and then equal time to apple next week like it, we'll have more room to breathe I'm just saying some people are going to get to write about this topic and I'm a little jealous, but yeah, (laughs) um, you know, like this is, this really sets the stakes up for Apple tomorrow because I saw this and I swear guys, I'm like, you were like, why am I using Mac again? I, I really am. I really am. Like I love my Mac, but I tell you, this for ZBrush, like, Simone, have you played Gears of War 4 yet at all? No, I haven't. So do you know that kind of hyper-realistic look of characters in games like Gears of War? Like, it looks like they're made out of clay. Um, Yeah, this is ZBrush. And this is like someone sat down and created the ideal uh, interface for ZBrush. Like, it's just an amazing Mm -hmm. product. So you are talking about the Surface Studio right now. Yes, I am. Yes. So Microsoft announced today a beautiful tabletop version of the Surface that sits on two legs that have a hinge in them. So it can be a standing screen and fold down into a huge tablet. And... It doesn't look gimmicky at all. It just looks freaking beautiful. And like every piece that they announced as they're going over it, like the the dial that you can use to uh, like scroll through different brush sizes and different colors, uh, the way that all the, the legs work and fit together. It's just really, really beautiful. And it's a really thoughtful, incredible a sleek product and I, I keep looking at pictures of it and i'm upset that i i'm i mean i'm probably not going to be switching because i mean the whole fox media infrastructure is built on you know we all have Macs and stuff but um i would love to just hang out with this for a day get to know it a little bit take it on a date or something well the thing is the the dial on it yeah this it's isn't awesome. a um yeah it's not like a, a gimmick you know sometimes Wacom will put out these accessories to go with their um you know their tablets that are kind of gimmicky this isn't the one thing every single person that uses Wacom uses is the little dial on the side of it whether you're turning up the, or down the opacity for a brush or the size or kind of slowly gradiating through things I mean I can think of like hundreds of uses of this and the haptic feedback in it I mean Christina what do you think yeah, no, I mean, so I got to play with it today uh, after the event. So I was I was at the event um, and I got to play with it. And um, the the dial is awesome. And and you're right, we've seen similar products before, but never something first party. And and I think this well integrated. The 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 my question with the dial because um, what's cool about it is it obviously works on the desk. And if you use it on the desk, you can use it with the Surface Pro or the Surface Book. Um, and and it'll work on the desk with the Surface uh, Studio as well. But if you place it on the screen then it can do really cool stuff. Like, you know, you can basically can act as a color palette and, and you can grab colors from it with the pen and you can use it as a drawing tool and um, not a drawing tool as, as a ruler. Um, and it, and it's awesome. Uh, but, but, you know, um, apps have to develop support for it. And so Adobe apps right now, anyway, it doesn't look like out of the box, they're going to be launching with support for the dial, which is disappointing. Now, um, they were, they did demo Photoshop, um, on, um, stage. And so you have to assume that, you know, Photoshop is, it works well with the, the surface book and the surface pro already. So you have to assume that the Adobe probably, I hope they will add support, but it, it, it's, you know, just a matter of, of timing on that. But it's, it's a really cool, I think, like method of, of input and kind of an additional thing. Cause when you think about it, I think why the dial is so ingenious 
when you've got something this large and you're you're talking about pen input, um, it could be really frustrating if you do need to switch tools or if you need mm-hmm. to adjust, you know, brush size because this is not a situation where you've got your keyboard easy, you know, to access and, um, you know, you're in the middle of drawing something and then you've got to kind of pause, move over, you know, and this thing is huge. It's 28 inches, you know, so to have to, you know, adjust a those settings. A lot of mouse work. <laughs> totally. And, and you're not going to, you can't use the mouse with it when you're kind of hunched over if it's on like a draftsman table. I mean, I guess you could, but it's really not ideal for that. So that's where this dial is really perfect because you could literally have that either sitting on the screen um, ready to do its thing or you know on your desk next to the screen and just reach over and and you know play with that while you're still using the pen mode hmm. I just I'm thinking about 3d navigation so every single pro, um, every single program that you use has a different uh, you know like uh, paradigm so you know like in Maya if I want to strafe left like pan across something like you hold down alt shift middle mouse button hold the right button and pull it up and down like it's really convoluted and I think something like this you can really see it like being used for the the complicated pan and strafe controls with that and just coming up with the universal design for that like i mean it's it it it's going to be difficult to program this in but like basic functionality i mean you could cheat that almost with like you know key binding stuff in a third-party sure. app so i'm i'm all in on this i i love it it's another one of those those ways to interact with things that looks i think more natural to us i mean mm-hmm. if you think about it clicking through a menu is not a really act natural thing but this is natural and i think that moving in that direction um is just generally good for the future. And the thing that made me gasp, and this is really silly, as I was reading through your hands-on, Christina, when I got to the part about all the USB ports and the uh, Ethernet port and everything being in the base of the the Surface Studio, that it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know why this particularly made me so excited. Maybe because I'm used to reaching around the back. I give give my iMac no, the old totally. reach around. I'm like, yeah, put those things in the base. Let me <laughs> well, have them in front of my face. Well, it does a couple of things. Stick it's it really in. smart. For, it, it does a couple of things because it's really smart for them to put it in the base, right? Because um, what it does is that le- that's how they can get that screen so thin. The thing is, mm-hmm. it's twelve point like three millimeters thick or whatever. Like they said, it's like the thinnest you know all in one desktop display ever, and one of the thinnest displays ever. And they're not wrong. Um, like literally, the width of the of the service pen. So the service pen attaches to the side through a magnet, and the pen, like laying flat on its side, is like the same width. As, wow. As, wow. As, as the monitor. And so, but what's great about that is, you know, you're, you're talking about it, the, the screen weighs 13 pounds, but it's on these two hinges. And so you can literally lower it with one hand. Now, you're probably a little better off doing it with two, but you can certainly do it with one. And, and it, to get all the way flat, I kind of needed to maybe use two just because it's so, it's so big. But if you just wanted to start lowering it a little bit, you could definitely do it with one without a problem. It's, it, it feels totally light um but but i think by by putting all that stuff in the base that's what lets them make this so movable because you've got to mm-hmm. think if it had all the guts in it it would have to have a big you know butt on it like the imac and right. and that's just you know we, we you can see i mean the imac does to a certain degree like when you take it out of the box like you know it's, it's got a pretty good swivel and you can kind of detach the way um, the stand works, so you can kind of get it to to lie back a little bit, but it's it's unwieldy, and and this doesn't feel unwieldy. Um, I mean, it's it's still going to be a humongous, giant, you know, thing. Like I, I think, like in my my hands on a road, it's like you're swimming, um, you know, you're going swimming inside this thing. Yeah, and that's you're what leaning it feels on like. it, and it's like a not quite five k, but hugely, uh, hugely big resolution window into completely. another world. And speaking of leaning on it, this is one thing I think you would appreciate, Brie. Like, they've mm-hmm. done a really good job with, like, the arm detection and other stuff so that when you're drawing on it, if you've got, you know, like, your body physically on the device, that's not going to set off anything. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I think, I, you know, it's, I really do love this. And I want to be clear, I'm really thinking about getting one. But just to talk a little bit about the downside, like the the upper level of this is what was it forty two hundred dollars almost, and yeah, you know, the GPU inside of it is squeaking by like you know uh, Oculus slash Vive like specs. Um, you know it'll run Overwatch and stuff like that, okay. But as far as being a computer for the future. I'm not sure that this is that. And we were talking about four thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, that is definitely Mac Pro territory, right there. Oh, definitely. Um, well, it, it is, but um, you know, when you look at the price of a Cintiq, right? 
Cintiq is a 27 inch uh, QHD Cintiq, which has a lower resolution screen. Granted, it has more pressure. It has more. It's 2024 pressure sensitivity points. This is 1024. So for certain artists, things they need to do a head to head and see if this would be good enough. But but I'm just but 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 it's a similar product. Let's just put it that way. The 27 yeah, inch yeah, yeah. Cintiq is three thousand dollars. Yeah. Well, the Cintiq has always been overpriced. I have to say. <laughs> yeah. you know, no, like, of course. It, but, it but, but I'm but, but I'm yeah. just saying that that is for a non you know 5k display that is for simply a, a, a for a tablet that is that is not that is something you need a computer to then run and that needs to be powerful enough to, to power that thing that is three thousand dollars yeah um, and okay. i think the three thousand uh, dollar version of this like that's the one i would get um i i just i guess i'm saying like i think i think there's a decent argument that you know apple's strategy of still even though they are all in on like all in one device. You, if you want to upgrade, throw the whole thing away and go to the Apple store. Yeah, they're very into that. But the Mac Pro is decoupled to a certain extent. That is the only thing that gives me any amount of pause about this. It's the lack of upgradability with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, and, and I think that's fair. I mean, I, the thing that would give me pause too, well, there are two things. One, and, and I think we're going to be talking about this next week. This is what I'm going to be complaining about with the MacBook Pro is that it's using the sixth generation um, uh, Core i7. So it's not using right. KB Lake. Yep. Um, I understand that. Um, apparently, you know, they were too far along in the design process and they just couldn't get, they, it, it didn't, you know, oh, Intel that's kind such of- such a shame. Intel dropped the ball, and not dropped the ball, but but nobody was expecting KB Lake from Intel. And and when it came, you know, people, I, I just don't think, that, you know, I think you had somebody like Dell, like they can just drop the processors in because that's literally the only thing they do and, and, and they <laughs> kind of make the same designs. So it's probably not as big of an architecture deal. But, you know, in this case, you've got your product finalized. It's too late to change. So I think that's number one. Number two, and this isn't a huge problem because I think that the graphics chip is more than good enough. And, and again, this is, not, I mean, iMac kind of does this too, but but it's using the NVIDIA, it's using the mobile chip. So it's the, the 965M and the 980M. Yeah. Yep. And, and so that's fine. But I think for anybody who was comparing this to a Mac Pro or something like that, that's obviously something you have to keep in mind. Having said that, um, I mean, some 3D work, this isn't going to be applicable, but I think for the most people that they're really targeting this at, you know, people who live in and breathe inside Photoshop, Illustrator, mm-hmm. um, some of those things, you know, a lot of that is really much more, Adobe has optimized those tools for the CPU more than the GPU anyway. So, right. uh, you know, so, so, so much of that is, is, you know, not going to be as, as dependent on, on needing a desktop class graphics card. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, they're, they're definitely foibles. And, and, and the fact that, like you said, other than like, you know, upgrading the RAM, I suppose, or whatever, like that, that this is not something that you can really do work on. That's that's definitely going to be um, a downside. I do think, though, and I love love your take on this, Brian, and, and your thoughts too, Simone. Since since you know you don't work, since you work in this space, since you're creative, you're both creative professionals. I do wonder, though. I think the way they're kind of selling this as kind of a, a tool, in a sense, if that kind of does that make up for the lack of upgradability, the fact that they're kind of selling this almost as an appliance. Yeah, I think um, you know. I don't know how you feel, Simone, but I have long been frustrated that there hasn't been anyone out there uh, competing with Wacom. You know, yeah. like I've used mm. the Intuos. I upgraded, like if you came to my office right now, I've got the Intuos 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. I, I have used a Cintiq professionally when my employers provided one for me. I've never bought one because I just can't justify the the price of it. You know, like it is, um, it, it's just horrible. Like right. uh, the screen quality is bad. It's thick. It's ugly. The software integration isn't great. What it does is, is good. It's a fantastic product. Product, but you know, I've always said, you know what, for three thousand dollars, I could just get that disconnect while I'm using ZBrush between like looking <laughs> at the screen and using my hand, and you know, that's worth it to me. I think this is directly taking on Cintiq and providing um, yes. an alternative there, particularly with the hardware software integration. That's the real problem with Cintiq. Nobody's mm-hmm. arguing. Like, you know, I think it's really interesting, Christina. You mentioned the pressure sensitivity. That stuff doesn't matter. It I almost was doesn't ask matter you about to that. Anyone. Yeah, go I, on. No, no, no. Yeah, trading it's, pressure sensitivity for almost 5K display the, the, and that the, color the gamut. Of it, yeah, it doesn't matter that much. I mean, honestly, if you're serious about this stuff, you will set the interpolation to give you like a smooth up and down for different strokes and stuff like that. But it's just a selling point. Like it's something they do to 
to to get you to like see this feature in the Cintiq. So I perceive this as really providing competition in that space, finally, which we have desperately <laughs> needed for a long time. Um, and I'm just, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Brie, about uh, the, the 3D paint, the upgrades <laughs> that they're making to paint. That was... See, uh, oh, God. Cute. It, it looked really interesting. So just to get really hyper-technical for a minute, there are so many different ways you can... Um, you can approximate something like that taken in real life. And because I'm not there at the event, like you were Christina to like ask details, like if they're using pixels, are they applying normal max to rough geometric shapes? There's a lot of like technical questions under the surface because, you know, if you're using NURB geometry versus polygonal geometry versus quads versus tries, like all this has huge implications for how you can actually use it. I, I think the takeaway isn't so much that actual program that you're talking about. And what Simone's talking about, in case you didn't see it, is a um, they're kind of pushing the idea of 3D for everyone. So, you know, if you're not Brianna Wu and you happen to have a $4,000 copy of Maya that you actually understand and use like sitting <laughs> in your house like maybe you don't understand 3d to that degree but this is taking those concepts and putting it out there for consumers to actually be able to play with and use uh with some applications like video conferencing they're very uh interesting so to me the takeaway news from this was microsoft getting cheap entry-level uh, VR hardware out to the yes. masses and some tools that will get the masses interested in it. To me, that's the takeaway, Simone, rather yeah. than looking at the actual You're not going to be re- replacing that... your, your programs with 3D paint and making games <laughs> in 3D paint. I don't think so. I, I don't am think shocked. So. I mean, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think it's great for kids. I mean, I think that yeah. I had to kind of well, take myself out a little bit. Well, paint has always kind of been like the, the gateway drug yes. to art programs right. if you don't. Yeah. Um, Without a doubt. Yeah, Without you mean, a doubt. Yeah. People who don't have Photoshop on their computers, we all have paint. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think, you know, I mean, I was being a little bit glib in our live blog. I was like, well, aren't kids just going to pirate Maya anyway? Um, <laughs> and I mean, but, but, but really. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's $4,000. Might, I mean, but they will. But <laughs> yeah. like, I pirated Photoshop. I mean, this is what you, that's how you learn. You know, you, you learn those tools, you find crack copies. Anyway. I'm not encouraging people to do that. Pay for software. Software has value. Uh, Even all you five-year-olds that are listening to our show. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, but, um, you know, it's, um, but I think that I had to kind of take myself out of it a little bit and be like, this wouldn't be something that the average person is going to use. But for kids, this could be a great gateway into this world. And I think that's unique. But I think you nailed it, Brie. I think that the the low-cost VR hardware, and and I was talking about this on a Facebook Live today. I don't think, you know, they didn't show it with gaming at all because with this low-cost, you know, headset stuff, I bet the latency will be ridiculously bad. So so it's it's not for gaming. And that, that I think, is actually notable, right? Because I think that this is, you know, Microsoft has been pretty clear, and we've talked about this a lot on Rocket, about how they really see, like, you know, they, they keep calling it mixed reality, you know, it's kind of the future HoloLens. But I think the fact that they're saying, hey, look, there are other use cases for VR other than just games, and we're going to have um, headsets that are that are affordable, that's To notable. be honest, the shopping, like the furniture shopping demonstration that, that they did cool. with the VR headset, that was very cool. So they had a guy, if you didn't see it, they had a guy looking through a bunch of stools and pull one out, uh, make it into a virtual 3D object to see how it would look in his living room. That's very awesome. That's something that I could see just anyone having an application for in their lives. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't imagine gaming on a, a $299 uh, VR headset. I mean, maybe if you had like an IV of Dranamine, like you're using that as I mean, you're I have using one anyway, it. Yeah. but yeah. it's not going to make it better, Brie. The thing, uh, uh, back to gaming, actually, the thing that interested me was the uh, built in live streaming. Um, just having worked with various live streaming programs before, um, I think that that's a really cool thing. I don't know what the capabilities of it are at the moment because they didn't really get into like the nitty gritty of like, can you switch between scenes and how do the overlays work and stuff? But very, I, I was into that. The brief mention of it. <laughs> I, I think, I think, you know, we, God, we could spend like two hours on this topic today. We just can't because there's so Thanks, much Microsoft. Stuff. Thanks for right. doing a good job. Yeah, We appreciate Screw that. You. I mean, Christian, what is your overall take from this? Because what I saw of the event, I mean, 
I feel like Microsoft is really bringing their A game in yes. a way I have not seen since the 90s. Yeah. And this, you're seeing them really do sexy, you know, first party hardware. You were seeing them like they brought out a new version of Windows 10 or rather an update for creatives. It's got some really smart stuff in there. You're seeing them really build this alternative ecosystem like, you know, okay, let Oculus and Vive fight that out. We're going to be over here doing more consumer experiences away from the game space. I just, everything they're doing really, really makes me want to go back to Windows. I mean, Ooh. is that your feeling uh, from this? I mean, I mean, I, I wrote kind of at the end of my, of, of my, you know, hands-on. I was like, it's enough to almost make me want to switch to windows 10, you know, yeah. almost, yeah. um, I'm too ingrained with, with Mac. Um, and, and I don't have a professional use case for this. Unfortunately, I'm too ingrained with Mac, but it, it, it does make a very compelling case. What I would say is, and this is kind of my takeaway, you know, Apple, I don't want to say they've abandoned the creative class cause that's not quite true, but Apple used to always be known as the company that really targeted the creative class. And, and that's part of the thing that kind of made them cool is that you saw, you know, like, you know, it, it was kind of an aspirational product. And now Apple has gone very mainstream. And that's great, right? But to do that, they have kind of given up, you know, their their creative... Uh, I, I Again, I don't want to say abandoned because that's not accurate. But I do feel like, you know, we saw it with... The, you saw Expanded really, from. <laughs> uh, but, but, but when they've expanded from, it's been often at the detriment for their kind of creative professionals. Because you look at a product like Final Cut 10, yeah. which is now good. But the first few years was not. And what happened in that period of time is they lost the crown. Like Adobe now has more installations than Final Cut does. And that's because while Apple was making was bringing Final Cut 10 up to parity with, with Final Cut 7, and people were switching the workflows to stuff that they could actually use. And Adobe came in and, and, and kind of, you know, ate their, you know, kicked their butts, you know, took their lunch money. And so what's happened is that a lot of, and, and then you look at kind of how long they take to update stuff. So, you know, the Mac Pro is going on three years without an update without an upgrade. And that's, you know, putting some creative professionals and high-end professionals in kind of untenable situations where they're having to go, well, I need more something more powerful for this. My software also runs on Windows. I can build this machine. And then you also have kind of, you know, you have machines and, and things that used to be designed primarily for, you know, certain types of users who are now designed for, for mainstream users. And that's just the difference, you know, that's happened. And so I think that it's really notable. I think you're right. This is the first time we've really seen Microsoft bring their A game since the 90s. But I think it's really notable that they now feel that they are in a position. And frankly, that Apple has let them get in a position where they can say, actually, you know what? We're going to feel comfortable targeting this very niche group of customers, because let's be clear, this the Surface, you know, uh, the Surface Book Pro is not a, a mainstream computer. That that starts, you know, at at you know more than two thousand dollars. That is an expensive machine if you get it completely tricked out, but very powerful. Um, the um, the, Sur the the Surface Studio is definitely they are they are not saying bring this in your home. And in fact, they kind of said maybe you could, but that's not what it's designed for. This is not a bring to your home computer, which is how they've kind of positioned the iMac. Tons of, you know, creatives use it, but but it, but it is kind of said as, you know, this could be a family computer, this could be, you know, a work computer, whatever. What they're very clearly saying about Surface Studio is this is for our artists and creatives. This is for a very specific niche group. And I think it's interesting that they are willing to make that targeted play and they feel confident in their own offerings. And I think to your point, Bree, I think that, yeah, I mean, if I weren't so ingrained in, I think the Mac apps and some of the other stuff, I would definitely like, if I didn't have the muscle memory, if I was it, at, at this point, it's almost, you know, attrition as much as it is anything else. I would consider we can't it. Get I out. <laughs> I can't get so out. I, I wonder how much flexibility it. having, I guess the dominant OS gives them because they, they don't have to worry about making that or they, they have a lot of machines out there. Like they, ha you know, they have Dell running Windows, they have HP running Windows, et cetera, et cetera. Other people are making machines to run with their OS. Do you think that that gives them more freedom to say, okay, we're going to make our own proprietary machine, um, and we're not going to compete with like these laptop makers or these right. like gaming PC I, makers? We're going to do something yeah. for maybe people who want something a little more, a little more niche. I think that's really the the difference here, Simone. So, what is the you know, Christina? To your point, what is the last product that Microsoft, uh, the Apple brought out that really targeted the uh, creative classes? The iPad, iPad Pro, Pro, right? Right. So right. let's let's compare these. So 
if you go over to Windows 10, what's on Windows 10? You know, you've got 3D Max, you've got Maya, you've got ZBrush, you've got Flash, you've got, you know, uh, After Effects, you've got, you know, Avid, you've got everything over there, right? The creative stuff, dedicated hardware, black magic, everything is over there. For Apple, their choice that brought it over to the mainstream, um, you know, with this proprietary uh, iPad software, you know, they have this wonderful event talking about the pencil, but where's the software to back it up? I have played with UMake, which is a very expensive program to yeah. mess with on the iPad. It's like over $100 a year. Um, I have spent probably 30 or 40 hours just trying to do basic shapes uh, with that program. It's just not right for prime time. And they're not getting support from Apple. Uh, the only uh, competitor to uh, Illustrator on the iPad Pro is Graphic, which is very good. But, you know, Illustrator, like they've been upgrading that every single year since the 90s. And it is a more powerful program. So your point, Simone, like the, with them having such a large base of creative programs over there. The question isn't just hardware. It's does Apple take the time to, you know, invest in these tools for things like the iPad Pro? I think you can look at the iPad Pro and say, if you're not a writer, if you don't use the keyboard, I'm not sure this has really been a successful marketplace, certainly not for the people that make those creative tools. So, I I mean, it's difficult. I think it is. And I, and I think, and we've talked about this before. I think that they had, had they, and they could still do this. One of the problems with the iPad Pro, you know, there's the pricing problem of, of, of apps, you know, in the app store and mm-hmm. it costs a lot of money. You can, you can absolutely build a full, fully functional app, an iPad app, iPad Pro app that'll be great, but you've got two problems. One, if you target the iPad Pro, you can't just target the iPad Pro. You can't just say only work in the 9.7, only work in the 12.9. It's also, you know, it, it'll run on the iPad Air. And, and so that gives people kind of, it, it does two things. It gives kind of poor performance for people who are running it on an Air or Air 2. And then it also, um, I think sets people up for, for pricing expectations that aren't quite there. I think if you could target just the iPad Pro, you could presumably have companies not doing subscription based stuff, but even just doing like, outright sales and saying, we're going to charge $100 for this app. Yeah. And I think that people would be more willing to pay it um, if if they knew that it was really kind of a professional tool. But I think at this point, you're right, Brie. Like, you know, I don't know how successful people who have been building apps specifically for iPad Pro have been. I'd love to hear from them if, if you're one of those people, like, let us know. Um, or if you're somebody who uses an iPad Pro in a professional creative, uh, you know, um, environment and and you have apps um, that, that are really good, we'd love to know about those too. Um Christina at uh, gizmodo.com um, or uh, any of us at our, at our emails. I don't know what our rocket email is, <laughs> um, but, but like, but I think that's a, that, that's a really good point. You know, Microsoft has this base of apps that already work with it. And, and because the, you know, they brought touch to windows, you know, with windows eight at this point, most of those apps have, you know, at least some tr- cursory support and 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 they're you know you're not going to I think that if you have a product like this and there's even a modicum of, of interest from your from your customers you're not going to not update it to make sure that it works really well with the Surface Pen you know yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it takes you longer to support the dial or, or something but you're not going to not uh, make sure that the, that this works really well on this sort of machine that is targeted this specific user base. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Text Expander from Smile. 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 <laughs> I think that's the same one I've done before. I got to get a new gag for this. No, uh, you can communicate smarter with Text Expander. It puts the power of amazing and delightful text shortcuts right in the palm of your hand. So with just a few keystrokes, you can tap something that will expand into a phrase, sentence, paragraph, whatever it is that you need to communicate in a flash, in a flourish, in a glitter bomb explosion, I imagine. It, that that's how that's how it feels in your heart when you save time typing and text expander makes your little snippets into words that other people will have to spend their time reading. You'll be able to speed through um, and customize stuff that you type every day with the use of text expander in snippets uh 
don't type boilerplate. It's 2016. Why are you typing whatever? Like, say, say it's say it's Polygon's Halloween series, and at the beginning of every article, there's a little blurb about how oh, this is our Halloween series. This is where we're writing our opinions. Blah blah blah. It's running for this many. No, no, snip it. You snip it. That you out there, you Polygon writer, you snip it. <laughs> few keystrokes. Boom. You've got that boilerplate ready to go. You don't have to worry about all that. It's time spent formatting things and crap. No, make your life convenient with text expander. And you can transform that repetitive stuff into knowledge with text expander team subscriptions. You can share snippets with your whole team. Say I'm formatting that article this week instead of you. I have these same snippets that you have. Boom. I am just as productive as you. Suck on that, my wonderful coworker who I love. Text Expander can format dates, autocorrect misspellings, and search your collected knowledge with a few letters and a hotkey. Boom. It's so easy. It's perfect for standardizing and improving the written replies that you and your entire team write every day. Be consistent, be cool, be smart with Text Expander. Yes. <laughs> There's actually a great t- example in the uh, the ad copy. Uh, <laughs> it helps make sure you're typing Mac OS instead of OS 10. <laughs> yeah. So if you think it, uh, if you think you're you're getting in a bad habit with writing, turn it into a snippet. Boom! Your bad habit's gone. <laughs> I set up a text expander on my husband's account on my Mac that every time he types the word "never," it says, mm-hmm. "Never gonna give you up. Never gonna let you down." <laughs> okay, that's just <laughs> every cruel. single time. Amazing. So I, and he has no idea how to undo it. So, it's so this just is great. an example of how you cannot save time with text expander right, by playing right. on your beloved time. spouse. Yes. Spouse, so good. Beloved is a very strong word, Samantha. I mean, I think it's beloved. I mean, your spouse that you've grown accustomed to. You you might not be beloved to you. He's beloved to Simone and I. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. I love So if you want to try Text Expander free for 30 days, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. Um, The Text Expander subscriptions include software for Mac, iPad, iPhone, and there's Windows Beta as well get in on that party windows users uh but there's a very very special offer this week if you go to smilesoftware.com slash rocket you can claim a 50 50 five discount on your first year of a text expander life hacker subscription hack your life this offer runs to november 15th um and again you can try text expander free for 30 days go to smilesoftware.com slash rocket Get it. Get it. Thank you so much, Smile, for uh, sponsoring the show again and your support of us and Relay FM. Get it. Get it with Text Expander from Smile. <laughs> <laughs> Get it. Oh. A good a good time we're having here. So how about that internet last Friday? Oh that was a fun God. day. Wow. Uh, oh. can, I, can, I, can, I, can I just be uh, really selfish for a second and say that Gizmodo had a record-breaking traffic day? So um, we, 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 it was real good for us. <laughs> I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy people could access your website. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, real, I'm real sorry, real sorry about uh, about Vox Media there, uh, Simone. Sorry yep. about that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> sorry about that. It was fine. So okay, so let's walk through what happened. Uh, there was a DOS attack uh, by many, many uh, smart devices. Uh, Trace back to uh, sorry, let me find the name of the country or country, not country company. Country. Shanghai. <laughs> wow, which is a Chinese company. Um, so basically, some of the the hardware bleh, pieces of things that they had shipped out, like DVRs and in-home security cameras, had hardware that was protected by a default password, and these were hacked and used to send a DOS attack to um, a DNS service, which ruined the entire internet for everyone who worked on it, unless apparently you worked at Gizmodo Media Group, in which case yeah. you had a great <laughs> You're day. Fine. You're fine because people could actually access our website. That's why we got so much traffic. We were like the one website on the internet that was still running. Everybody was wondering what was up. I was hitting Gizmodo every five minutes. Like, why can't I get on Twitter? So, yeah, no, this is this is like we're joking about it, but this is yeah, a terrible. really, a real, real really serious attack on you know American economic structure and and not just you know, I mean not just America. It ended up being global. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it did. It affected yeah, a lot of know, people. So. Uh, 
Yes. But, you know, this, uh, it was really interesting because WikiLeaks at one point uh, claimed credit for this, uh, even though that seemed to be debunked a little bit later on. Yes. Then you had um, another, I forget the name of it, I was talking on Twitter, they attributed it to another um, hacker group of basically teenagers. But, you know, this is a really serious um, situation. And the, the the crux of it is this is a very sophisticated denial of service attack. And what they did is they kind of turned the Internet of Things against us. So there are a lot of DVRs and webcams out there that have this, like, one default password, or in some situations they had no security whatsoever. Uh, and then this, is it pronounced Mirai? Is that correct, uh, Mirai, Christina? I think. Do you know? Yeah. Mirai. yeah, I believe so. Mirai yeah. botnet. It basically it's um it's out there. It seizes control of these devices. Um, it rewrites it, and then that device is then used for your internet to basically keep pinging these sites and take them down. So because of the non-centralized nature of the attack, it's nearly impossible to uh, take, you know, to basically fight against. So this took Twitter off for offline for a good part of Friday. Um, you know, if you're trying to upload code to GitHub, that was down for a good part of the day. Uh, so this is a really serious attack on infrastructure. Yep. Yeah. Uh, no, and, and and I think that is it, the, the sad thing. I mean, this is the sign of things to come, right? This is this is only going to happen more and more frequently. And 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 a little something to talk about, you know, the cameras that the the devices that were used in this. It wasn't just that the default password was never changed. It was the fact that most for most customers they couldn't change mm-hmm. the default password because there's not a user accessible tool. And I think that this underscores what so many people have been warning people about for years about the Internet of Things. And and it's a very real concern that you have a lot of these devices that don't have the user facing interfaces and you've got to rely on the companies to do security stuff. And many of them won't. They they cut corners and it's it the the end results can be really really bad so you know you wind up having a, a million kind of you know device millions of devices out there potentially mm-hmm. you know that that are just acting on which orders you don't of, even th- like we think of attacks like this oh, coming from computers and things like that that people interface with but this was right. just it, cameras the, the, and DVDs are cameras like yeah cameras and DVDs are these are things that are literally that are connected to the internet because they're plugged in mm-hmm. um, but you know but you and you don't have to be a that, big tech nerd to use no not at all and the thing is too is that you know in a lot historically and a lot of attacks, you could kind of get the sense, like if if you knew that you were being used in a in a botnet attack, like you would kind of say, hey, you know, my my internet is slow and something's happening, and you can kind of see, you know, the the packets happening. But the thing is, because they've got so many of these devices that they can kind of um, uh, weaponize, and that's uh, frankly, I think that's the accurate term for it, right? Yeah. They, they're yeah. weaponizing this stuff. Is that you know they can just they're 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 sending you know. Pings. They're they're overloading a DNS server, so this isn't even requiring a ton of traffic from each individual device. So this is somebody who, like, if, if your house or if you, one of your devices was victim of one of these things, it probably wouldn't even affect the performance of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which which is even scarier. And there's so no, I think there's yeah. there's so much to unpack here. I mean, there's Amazon taking a while to you know react to this. There's the company uh, eventually issuing a recall. Though looking, I don't think like we have enough details to really know how successful that's no, going to I mean, be. That that's going to be really hard because I mean they're they're a Chinese company and and right. they're. The, the rules are different, you know? So to me, it seems like there, there are two issues here. I mean, the first is, you know, you, like, Simone, you're talking about Vox was really, really affected hard by this. You know, that's your advertisers that couldn't get out the ads. You guys paid and wrote content. It wasn't necessarily served to people. You know, this is an attack on the economic infrastructure of the United States. And yeah, this is a extremely serious situation, Christina. And the only way forward I can think of with this is, you know, living in a fantasy where consumers are all going to get hyper-educated and like change passwords themselves. That's not feasible. You know, expecting companies to like up their security and stop this from happening again, that's not feasible. Like there was a tweet I saw and I love that, you know, the market can't fix this because neither the consumer nor the, you know, producer is interested in spending money on security. Right. So the only way I can think of to 
you know, stop this is to put liability yes. in place for companies would, that, te- that don't take this seriously. I absolutely agree. I, and I've argued for that for a long time. Um, yeah. I, you know, when, when the Ashley Madison hack happened, I, I yeah. actually, um, the, the end of that year, I actually wrote something for when I was still at Mashable about, you know, how like, you know, the year hacking became the norm. And my kind of takeaway was that exact thing. The only way we can really expect companies to take security seriously is for them to be held accountable when when their when their when their stuff breaks and and when they're insecure and and when it's proven that they were not following proper standards yeah. you know if it, it, you've got to have certain levels you know if it's something where it was a zero day and you had no idea and and, and you were caught off ground fine but that it doesn't appear that this was the case it looks like you know from what people are looking into this this company wasn't doing anything um to to audit their security correctly and, and didn't have any any you know steps in place to even update stuff once they found out that things were insecure and so i think the only way you can hold you can stop this is to hold people accountable is, is with economic sanctions frankly and and the hard thing in this case though is that this is a Chinese company. So enforcing those sorts of things and, you know, that might, maybe it has to get, you know, like imports involved. I don't, I don't even know how you would go about that unless you were saying we're not going to, you know, from, from a, from a, you know, we, in the United States, you might be able to say, well, we'll, we'll tax you these things if you want to still sell things in the U.S. But that's not going to stop the fact that if these devices are in other parts of the world, the U.S. government can't do anything with it. And and so it's probably has to be, you know, kind of a, a I don't even know. I, I think that, that that is for for a lot of companies the only way to solve it is is to be given sanctions. But when we live in a global economy, that's more difficult than it sounds too. Even well, if there was legislation you know behind that it, the the structure of Bretton Woods and you know, that's what evolved into our mo- modern you know, globalization system. It does sure. have safeguards within that to like handle these kinds of you know cross border things that threaten the entire system. There, so there are. Yeah, like it's a really complicated problem. Like, how do you take money in America and move it to Japan? Like, what is that trade balance worth? Like, these are experts who have created this. There are ways to arbitrate that, or you could do it the other way with, um, you know, putting extremely high tariffs on you know companies that you know prove themselves you know reckless with this stuff. I got I got tweets from people in the open source community that were like, well what does this mean for me if I'm part of an open source project that like does this badly? You know, am I gonna be liable as a coder? So you know, undoubtedly this is a very, very serious, difficult problem and it's one more for, you know, legal experts. But the, this isn't going to fix itself, and it, it's really jeopardizing, you know, the worldwide economy. I think it's so telling. You know, there was an NBC um, NBC uh, News announcement a few weeks ago, and what ended up happening is the Pentagon leaked to NBC News that they were about to um, perform a, a cyber attack on Russia. And they leaked a ton of the details out there, and it was clearly retaliatory for them, uh, you know, interfering in our elections here. And like, guys, this is the new warfare. This is warfare. So if we don't take this seriously, like, you know, this is literally the security and safety of the United States. So, you know, if this means Amazon is not going to be able to like sell dirt cheap, you know, Internet of Things devices. That's just the cost of us being safe. Yeah, and we really don't want more of those impacted devices, even if it's easier for us in the short term to have all these nice smart devices in our homes. We don't want that long term. We don't want to be that at risk, Uh, especially, I mean, if, if there's no way to interface with them to tell if they're safe just by looking at it, reading the manual, whatever, like... We can't really know, especially as lay people. Like we, we don't know, and that's that's very scary. So personally, as a person, you know, who doesn't want to deal with this, yeah, I would I would like people, the people who are making the devices and who have the knowledge um, and who should have the foresight to take responsibility for what they can do. Before I move on, Christina, can I ask you a question really quickly? Because you may know more about this than I do. Um, you know. The reason we find out about this stuff is security research. Like, um, we're going to link to a story in the show notes. It's Krebs on security. It's excellent. I read it every it single day. It's such a good explanation of yes. what happened. It, <laughs> they, they just do amazing work. My question is, you know, do you think there is an economic interest for the United States or even the tech industry as a whole 
like funding some sort of, you know, internet security research initiative there. Because these are, if you look at the way those companies like Krebs like end up funding themselves, you know, it's, you, you kind of salute when they catch this stuff and figure it out. But ultimately, like this is, the work they do is so incredibly vital. And we need so much more of that. Do you think there's a, a place for an industry initiative to kind of expand the security research we're doing? I definitely think there is. And, and yeah. I think that as more and more of this stuff happens, that's going to become more and more important. And hopefully people will start to start to have those sorts of conversations. It's almost in some ways as, as bad as this event was. In some ways, it's almost good when these sorts of catastrophic things happen like this and like Heartbleed because I think that it forces people who in the past have just said – have accused secu- the security community of kind of crying wolf to actually mm-hmm. take them seriously and go, oh, oh, wait a minute. Actually, look look at look at how things were impacted. Look at how – you know how many businesses, as you were pointing out, you know, commerce was affected. Look, look at the economic impact of this stuff and, and starts to make, take, take things more seriously, which I think then can lead to actual substantive uh, discussions. um, I hope that that would happen. But we, I mean, in the time we've been on the show, we've done so many big hacking stories. Right. I guess this is definitely more widespread because the entire internet was down. Well, that's, I, I mean, I think that's almost the, the, the difference, right? Yeah. I mean, even Heartbleed, as bad as that was, we all kind of said the real shoe will drop when, you know, we have all these connected devices that have a vulnerability that can't be solved. I mean, Heartbleed was bad, but you didn't really see any exploits from it, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. This was an instance where literally you could not access the internet and a lot of websites were down and a lot of services were impacted. And as sad as it is to say, the fact that people couldn't get on Twitter or Instagram or Spotify is going to, in some or Netflix is going to mean a lot more in as messed up as this is than you know. Oh, you know, my my personal information might have been stolen. Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. I think that that's honestly, I think it's more of a wake up call when you realize, wait, this could actually take down this infrastructure, which is so vital to so many things. Yeah. We have to actually have a conversation and actually have standards and actually do stuff with it. I just think it's it's so hard, Christina, because like, um, you know, look at the FCC, right? So on the back of my PlayStation 4 controller, there is a stamp and that has gone through certifications, making sure that that device is not going to interfere with like my telephone, right? That's a basic federal mandate to like help make those devices safe. But the federal government could never mandate security, ever. It's just not nimble enough. It just would kill innovation. We, It's such a hard problem to solve because you can't create an agency to make sure your stuff is unhackable. It's not tenable. So, you know, it really is a situation where, you know, having security researchers out there looking at this stuff, figuring it out, helping, you know, educate consumers to like change their basic router password. If you're a rocket listener, you need to go do that right now. Mm. That is so much more important currently for the security of the U.S. than say another B-1 bomber, right? <laughs> like, and we've got to really start thinking about this. And there's got to be, it, it is so distressing. Like, you linked to a story this week of, you know, this congresswoman from Tennessee talking about this and she tried uh, to link it to SOPA. SOPA. Mm. And you know, come on, Christina, I don't attack people, especially women, very often, but she didn't know what the hell she was no, talking she didn't. about. No, she's an idiot. She's a complete she's, idiot. I'm sorry. And what she was saying was actually dangerous. And, and it is her job to regulate this stuff. It's so her it's job to regulate so, it. And, and, and yeah. I, it was, I was flabbergasted that, that, that CNN gave her so much time to talk about it and that she had no idea. And that's really scary. I mean, I think this mm. is part of the problem, too, is that the people who, you're right, who there's their job to regulate this, she's complaining SOPA with a DDoS attack. She's saying that Sobo would have prevented this when it's like, oh. do you even know what you're talking about? Oh, it's, it's a mess. I don't know how we solve it. From I guess here. I'm not linking so. that in the show notes. <laughs> Please don't. Hey, this episode oh. of rocket is brought to you by blue apron, which makes home cooking incredible and accessible to everyone. It says it makes incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, but I think it'll make your home cooking incredible if it wasn't already. Uh, It can be. That power is within your grasp. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron will deliver seasonal recipes and the ingredients that you personally will use to make them with your number of hands, however many you have, making these delicious home-cooked meals for yourself, possibly for the people who also live in your house. Hopefully you know them and love them and want to feed them. Um, 
If not, you can make the food just for yourself. Let's say you have those two really busy days a week. You have no time to cook. You, it, it's, it's frustrating and it's annoying. Blue Apron will solve the problem of you, A, not you know, having the time to browse the many, many recipes on the internet and pick out what you want. B, having to go to the store and buy ingredients. Oh, what is that? That's garbage. Solves those problems by having you order boxes of food that will be delivered to your house. Uh, you can pre-select the recipes, get different things each week have new exciting food, cook on the days that you can, and then have food to eat on the days when you don't have time to cook. It's wonderful. And then it get, you don't have to be feel guilty and get takeout and, and suffer and weep because your bank account is draining slowly and you can't control yourself. Blue Apron will help you control yourself. Get, get a little power back in your hands. Make your own beautiful, wonderful home-cooked meals. Um... And stop and take a breath and think about where this ad read is going. <laughs> Good lord. Good lord. <laughs> so, the really great thing about these meals is that they come with beautiful step-by-step ingredient recipe cards, and they all take 40 minutes or less to cook. So no matter how busy you are, hopefully you can find that time, set aside that time to cook something nice for yourself and for the other people in your household. Uh, it's pretty awesome. And the recipes are really great. My own Griffin McElroy of Polygon.com had some kind of delicious catfish from Blue Apron this week. Uh, he said, don't sleep on that catfish. Apparently, it was the most amazing thing he's ever cooked. <laughs> I know you, Brianna, have cooked things that you say are the most amazing I, things you've ever I cooked. I love it. I love it. I'm an amazing chef at this I'm point. I'm waiting for you to cook for me. I want to be a person I, in your house that you love yeah, and yeah. want to cook for. Come on over. Well, we have... Uh, Dogs with loved and unloved that you can play with. Here. You literally only ever post about oh, Rocket, your dog I'm Rocket. Sorry. I I love her. You love her more than the others. I know. I do. She I knows. Do. I do. They all know. <laughs> Gosh. So Blue Apron actually works with uh, artisanal suppliers and family-run farms and fisheries to get awesome seasonal ingredients for you. Uh, get to check out some new recipes every week. You can look at those right now. Uh, go to blueapron.com slash rocket. Uh, they've got things like roasted pork steamed buns with black garlic mayonnaise and spicy cabbage slaw. Those sound really good. Air seared salmon. I don't like fish personally, but if you don't like fish, you have the option to not choose the fish. If you love the fish, you can get seared salmon and fall vegetable hash with apple brown butter dressing. That sounds really good. Oh my god. So blueapron.com slash rocket. Uh, you can get your first three meals free with free shipping. Uh, do that. Make some incredible home-cooked food. Feel the goodness well up inside you as you eat the delicious food that you cooked for yourself. Thank you, Blue Apron. I'm sorry I made it weird. Thank you so much for supporting Rocket <laughs> and Relay FM. I, I shouldn't tell you this, Simone, but every week before I record Rocket, uh, Frank goes, "What are you? What are you? Uh, what are the topics today?" And then he and I make a bet about in which segment you will uncomfortably sexualize something, <laughs> and then oh, we, we figure it out after the show. So uh, Frank won this week. That's all I'm going to say. He guessed second ad read. Yes. I, actually, no, the sexual parts happen with the, when I gave, we talked about giving my iMac a reach around. So oh, really. That's true. That's true. That was way earlier. That well, was like we'll first thing. We'll listen to it. We'll listen to it and debate it later. I wouldn't want to listen to this again. <laughs> Once is enough. I lived this. I have to live with me, Brianna. Um... <laughs> Anyway, who wants to briefly summarize the AT&T Time Warner merge? Or buyout, I guess. <laughs> Attempt? Attempt? Um, wow. Uh. So, does anybody remember the 90s? No. No. Okay, so, 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 it's, so, in, so in 1999-2000, like, this kind of happened. A company called AOL was like, we're going to pay... 100 billion plus dollars for Time Warner and everybody was like cool because the intersection of content and and uh you know the internet like makes so much sense. We didn't even have hashtags back then. You didn't but you had AOL go keywords. Go oh. you know AOL, you had AOL keywords which were like hashtags. So AOL keyword, you know, um sex in the city. 
would, would take you to the AOL website for Sex in the City. Synergy, maybe. Uh, okay. Anyway, that worked out really well. It was a really successful merger. AOL Time Warner ended up being a complete and total success. Nothing bad happened at all. Um, you know, Time Warner didn't end up taking the, the name back and, and didn't end hmm. up, you know, spinning off AOL for for pittance. And, and AOL didn't end up then getting bought for an even smaller pittance by, by Verizon. Um, yeah, everything that sounds legit. Fine. Everything completely was fine, which is why I'm so confident that AT and T and Time Warner is going to be a great idea. And I, I'm like, just I'm, I just honestly can't think of a better deal and and, and, a, and a better idea than this. I think what you know, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, you know, one of the the people over on the technology side was noting, you know, AT and T is pretty deep in debt, and you yes. know they're paying they, 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 for. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. No, they're going to have to take out uh, a lot of credit. Yeah, they're taking. They're basically hyperextending uh, their company. Uh, they're putting all of this on a credit card figuratively, and you know they're betting the entire company on this. And you can look at you know Verizon's kind of um, you know experimentation with you know taking up content as kind of putting a toe in the water. AT and T is betting the farm, the uh, tractor, yeah. the house, everything. Totally. On I mean, this. this. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and look, this is not. I mean. You, you mentioned Verizon. Verizon has definitely dipped their toes in the water. The biggest, uh, you know, analog to this would be Comcast, yeah. who who bought, um, you know, NBC Universal, and in Disclosure is is a big investor in uh, in Simone's company. <laughs> um, but uh, just just putting that out there. Um, but you know, but but um, NBC Universal is considerably smaller on every level than uh, than Time Warner, and. Uh, even though that was, and and I think that you know, a lot of people have said that they wouldn't that. You know they wouldn't have allowed the deal to go through in retrospect, and that it was kind of a consolidation of power. It opens up a lot of interesting questions. I mean, basically, AT and T, you know, which is at this point, you know, they're they're a, a wireless company. They are a, a dedicated internet company. They own Directv, so they've already been kind of getting into this media distribution stuff, and they're just wanting to kind of close the loop. And I think that putting aside any of the AOL Time Warner drama. You know, and, and, and saying, you know, have you learned nothing, Jeff Fuchs? Um, <laughs> p- p- putting that aside for, for, you know, a minute, I think that it, the deal raises some real potential questions about things like net neutrality and, and about, you know, um, having consolidating so much power in, into one company. I don't know, you know, when it, I understand why AT&T would want Time Warner. Time Warner is a very valuable property. Um, and, and just so no one is confused, do not in any way confuse Time Warner with Time Warner Cable. Um, they, they ceased being related many, many years ago, and, and Time Warner Cable is now, I think, known as Spectrum. It was bought by Charter. So um, that, so if you have Time Warner as your cable company, AT&T buying you will not improve your service. Sorry, you're screwed. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it's the truth. But um, – you know, I think that I understand why AT and T would would look at Time Warner, which includes you know HBO and CNN and um, Turner and uh, TNT and Cartoon Network and you know as sports teams and um, you know Warner Brothers Motion you know the movie studio and um, so many other things. I understand why they would look at that HBO alone. You would say, yeah, I, I would want to own this because HBO has like 127 million. Uh, paid subscribers, which you know, it makes them. I mean, Netflix is is obviously really on a tear, but but HBO is is far larger, um, and uh, globally anyway, in terms of, of subscriber numbers, and and it makes a ton of money. I could understand where you would say, you know, we are a distribution system, and we really want to own the content. We want to own this whole loop. Um, but but from a regulatory standpoint, I would you know this kind of creeps me out. I kind of don't like the idea of a company that is responsible. That's the second largest wireless network that has um, you know um, cable, um, you know uh, internet and, and and fiber types of things in different places. Um, that you know um, I, I kind of don't like the idea of them also controlling content distribution in this way because I don't mm. want them to then you run the risk of no matter what they say that they won't do of saying oh well, well you know. HBO is now going to look better if you're uh, an H- an AT&T subscriber. You know, like there's, I don't know. Hmm. I, I think it's not just that. Like if you, you read what they've talked about in the Wall Street Journal, like uh, you know, they've, the AT&T has admitted 
that getting your data and applying that yes. to the content you watch is a huge part of the financial incentive of the deal. Absolutely. So think about this. Okay. If somebody were looking at the things that I surf, um, you know, I spent a lot of time today looking at Nintendo Amiibos, right? Because <laughs> I, I do. I'm like, I want a Bayonetta Amiibo. And, oh my God. You know, Could you so, do a DOS so- attack with an Amiibo? <laughs> That would be so awesome, Simone. You probably could. Make that we take back our make entire happen. second segment. Yeah, no, no. I, okay, we I actually seriously do not. Overload. But go on. Sorry. So, you were looking at Amiibos. Okay, so imagine this. Like, they know I'm interested in Amiibos or games or Macs or whatever it is. And then they start, they know the content that I'm watching. And they put in ads. And they, they've got the, the marriage of those two things. Like, they called this in the Wall Street Journal the holy grail of advertising. And this is really scary. In fact, smaller companies and startups are terrified because without that data, they are not ever going to be able to compete with, you know, this basically, uh, you know, a, a monopoly of vertical integration that has knows everything that you are interested in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just like the, the risk of consumer having fewer choices. It's not just the net neutrality concerns with, you know, uh, Neelay Patel over at Verge was talking about how he couldn't stream, uh, you know, uh, basically the NFL because right. he happened to be on Verizon. It was with mm-hmm. AT&T. This is, that's absolutely violating net neutrality. There's absolutely. also privacy concerns. There's anti-competition concerns. Like this is a terrible idea. <laughs> no, that, I mean, because yeah. you can just imagine what AT and T is going to want to do. They're going to. They already have this deal kind of with Directv with AT and T stuff, where you can get like a cheaper Directv price if you're also an AT and T mobile customer. And you, but you know that they're going to extend and be, basically be like, oh hey, you want you want cheap HBO? Like you can get HBO and you can get you know CNN. You can get all this stuff, all these channels, you know, as part of your AT and T bill. Um, and, and get it cheaper and, and undercut people. And, and that, that is, is anti-competitive in some ways because, you know, like if you, maybe you live in an area where you can't get AT&T or maybe you just don't like AT&T because you've had bad experiences with them and as terrible as Verizon is, damn it, they work. Um, <laughs> you know, like, or, or maybe you really like T-Mobile because John Legere is awesome. And you're like, I don't want to go and pay more money for this. But, you know, they're offering these incentives and, and bundling content in certain ways that other people can't compete with. I mean, I think you're you're dead on. And, and then the, the, the data, you know, collection stuff is creepy too. And then for me personally, just as a content lover, like selfishly, I don't trust AT&T to have any clue how to deal with content. And, yep. mm. you know, I think Time Warner is is so good at content. Um, you know, they, they've definitely had kind of their their problems. And, and when they spun off, you know, the, 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 the Time Life group, you know, some of the magazine divisions, that certainly has been hard. But, I mean, I think that's just because print is screwed. But, like, they, they do a really good job with content. And I don't like the idea of, you know, some sort of huge telecom giant who thinks that they might know better getting involved. Because, again – that was one of the things that that ended up kind of other than you know AOL's business model not really working out because the whole broadband thing that really kind of nuked the the AOL Time Warner thing um was was that the, the two really didn't see eye to eye on that stuff and and I don't want to see that happen again um like I just Westworld is really good and I really don't want to <laughs> screw it up <laughs> oh. that's yeah that's my takeaway <laughs> Westworld is Dude. really good god <laughs> All right. So what are we up to? I think I think we know what you're up to, Christina. Uh, some fruit companies having some event. Yeah, well, what's that about? I don't know. I don't I'm not really into know. fruit. We'll talk about it next week if it's important. I guess. It's probably not going to be. Yeah. I mean, you know, it probably won't be. It's probably going to be tapered and therefore I won't care about it. Uh, Brianna, what are you up to? I am heading off to Canada in just a few hey. days to uh, give a talk at Google and also um, give a talk at a university there. And uh, I'm desperately waiting to read Christina's coverage of the Apple event. The what event? Okay. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> oh, God. I am continuing working on Halloween videos. I had oh. uh, my Twin Peaks go- video go up today, and tomorrow we've got a video about Scream Queens going up. Actually, Thursday, the day that this podcast comes out, it'll be um, Scream Queens and Mean Girls comparing them. Um, from That's a, a video uh, that was based on an op-ed written by Julia Alexander. Um, I made the video it- version of it. 
Is season two any good? I watched all of season one. I haven't started season two. I don't watch two. it because it, yeah. I'm not into horror, but I am very <gasps> into editing videos about horror and reading about <laughs> horror. Uh, I just right. can't watch it personally. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was it was fun to to see the snippets of it as I was working on the project. It kind of cemented that the show itself is not for me, but uh, <laughs> it looks entertaining. Um, God, I feel like there's a billion other things that I'm doing. Stay tuned for the Halloween episode of SEO Play. <laughs> oh, God, I'm excited for Halloween. Uh, is there another person I need to ask what we're doing? We've all talked. There are only no, three of us. There are only three and of now, us. Now you oh ask where, 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 where hey, can we be found? Hey, what about that, though? Where can we find you on the Internet of Things? Uh, I'm at Space Cacao. Cool. I'm at Film Underscore Girl. Wow. I'm <laughs> at Doom Quasar unless Twitter is dead and she will never find me again. I will be gone. You should, I will... You should check Doom Quasar, by the way, Simone, because Rocket listeners are asking you to read something. Um, I'm not going to do this this week, but you should You should definitely look at this for next week's show. Uh, yeah, I'll take a gander at that. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay. Well, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> if you liked this show <laughs> more than I liked my own ad reads this week, uh, please leave us a review on iTunes. We super duper appreciate it. Uh, it's a lovely thing to do with your time. And this episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 Terminated.